When you think of a public space, maybe you think of a state park or a local library. These are spaces that are preserved and maintained for public benefit. With a community of support, the fields get mowed and the shelves get stocked. In exchange, you can park your car and go for a hike on a pristine trail or take out the latest bestseller. Public media, whether it be a local NPR station, college radio, cable access, or PBS, shares the word public, but is guided by a different definition. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and today on Radio Berkman, how can public media be more like public space? On our show today, things are going to get a little meta. We'll talk about the emergence of podcasts and what it means to be part of a community of listeners like you. Melody Kramer is a Neiman Fellow, researching what it means to be a member of a public or community radio station in the digital age, beyond donating a few bucks a year or answering phones during a pledge drive. How do you define public? It feels like public can be a lot of things, like it can be audience, it can be community. How do you define public when it comes to media? I define public as people. So I would say it, it people are part of an audience, people are part of a community. I know that there's a lot of discussion in the public humanities space about what it means to be a member of the public and how they conceive of the public. But I think for the media, um, the public is, is who we're trying to get our stories out to, who the, the stories that we're trying to tell are, how we're trying to connect with those people, and and how we, we tell those stories in a meaningful way. Are we asking the right questions? Are we speaking to the right people? Are we telling the stories that we're telling in the right way? What kinds of user research could we do throughout the process to make sure that the stories that we tell are conveyed in, in the right way or address the right questions? Um, there's a woman at Michigan Public Radio named Sarah Alvarez who is doing a project right now to think, how do we make news more accessible to low-income communities? What kind of language do we use in the stories that might be alienating or inappropriate? I don't think that there's an overarching definition of public. I think the public can be many different communities. And, and thinking about how to address each one might require different storytelling techniques. It feels like uh, public media, as we kind of understand it today, was defined in a different era when the channels were limited, when people were starved for content and information and news about their about their community, about the world, about the country. How has that changed? Yeah, I think that 1968 was the Public Broadcasting Act. Public media really extends now to the digital space, and we need to think about what that means. When there was radio and TV, it was very simple. It was broadcasting ideas out through those mediums that were not funded by advertisers. But now that we have digital, what does it mean to think about advertisers and underwriters and how is that relationship, could that relationship differ? There are podcast hosts now who state underwriting credits in their own voices, which was not something that people in public media did or do on the radio. But are the rules different for podcasts? Are the rules different for the way that we operate in the digital space? I think that these are all questions that we'll have to think about in the coming years. You've used the analogy of, of national parks as as something for public media to, to aspire to. I wonder, what is it about national parks that you see as analogous to public media and what it could be? So I think national parks are a great thing to look at because everyone loves the national park. I can't think of anybody that I've ever met that says, oh, you know, they should get rid of Yellowstone and privatize it. Like Yellowstone is a 
a United States resource which should be accessible to the public. And the National Park Service has done a masterful job of making sure that the public realizes that. In February, President Obama announced that every fourth grader in the country is going to receive a free National Park Pass next year with their families. So the fourth grader and their parents and their siblings and their grandparents can go to a national park which makes this so that national parks are accessible in a way that they wouldn't have been to a population of people who should be able to access the national parks. You know, it's it's great that fourth graders are getting access to the national parks. It's great that fourth graders are going to have this experience that gets them outdoors, that gets them outside of their screens. Um, but more importantly, it, it helps change the relationship that these nine-year-olds will have with the national park throughout the course of their lives. They'll feel a different kind of relationship with the national park. They might feel an ownership relationship. They might feel more loyal to the national park. They might be more willing to donate financially or otherwise in the future. And they'll realize the importance of public space. I think public parks have done this really well. I think public libraries are also doing it really well. Um, the DC Public Library, which is where I live, they have many ways of getting people into their space that might be people who might not take out books. The internet has really changed the relationship that libraries have with the public. And what a lot of libraries have done across the country is think, how do we take our space that we have, the public spaces that people can enter, and make sure that people are connecting with other members of the community and the public in that space? How do we use our space as a way to further knowledge? So at my local library, I can take classes, I can use a 3D printer, I can listen to lectures, I can go to a meetup. I can interact in different ways that would make me value the library and advocate for the future of the public library, even though I might never take out a book. So what's the, how does the public media, how do you see it like kind of like possibly emulating some of these lessons that the park service and the public library teaches? So I think that at a lot of stations, we have transactional relationships with our audience in terms of membership. So we're asking people to donate money in exchange for becoming a member. But we haven't really thought about the kinds of relationships that we can have with people that extend beyond financial ones. So we haven't thought, how could we bring people into our public spaces? How could we ask for assistance when telling stories? Are we telling the right stories? How could we do user research with the people who are coming in through our space? Could people contribute in other meaningful ways to advocate um, for the future of public media? Could people donate code? Could people donate design skills? Could people suggest different stories that reporters could do? How are, how are we interacting with our audience, and how could those interactions change to kind of grow and develop the relationship that we have with that audience? What kind of examples have you seen of where a... Um like a, a station or a, like a media institution has done this particularly well? Yeah, there's a lot of stations that are doing really interesting work in this space. Um, and my hope is to try to connect them and to help them reach a wider audience with what they're doing. So in Washington, D.C., where I live, uh, the public radio station WAMU partnered with the local Code for D.C. Brigade to make their election night website. The people from Code for DC um, coded a map that was used by WAMU for election night. Um, in Rochester, New York, the local Hacks Hackers Brigade worked on an app for the station that allows the station to ask questions and get answers from their community. Um, in Salt Lake City, the community radio station allows people to come in and use an audio um, lab that they have set up. So if you're a member of the station, you can um, record your podcast in their podcasting studio. In Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is the Dayton market, I believe, 
Uh, they run classes for people who would like to learn how to be a radio reporter, and those people's um, reports are then broadcast on the air back to their community. And, and one of my favorite ones is on Cape Cod, which is right by here. They record these things called sonic IDs, which are basically every radio station across the country has to say their call letters at certain points. So it's, it's mandated, I think, by the FCC. Mm-hmm. And they have community members do them. And before they state the call letters for the station, they tell a little story about their own lives. So they're like 30 seconds, but instead of the person on broadcast consistently doing it, they're able to bring in all of these community voices and say, Cape Cod is all of us. I'm, I'm picturing the, the editors of a public media station you know, being hearing these kinds of ideas about involving a public and just getting riled up and being like, how could you, we, we need to, we need to control the message. We have this professional duty to articulate that, that I don't think anybody else in our community can do. I think it's really important to have editorial voices throughout the process. And I think it's important to have editorial voices guiding the process. But I think we should think of stations as more facilitators rather than distributors. I want to share something that KPCC in LA did or they're in Pasadena, but they're in Southern California. They were doing reports on their local municipal primary election, which I don't know if you've ever covered one of those, but they are not um, stories that attract a big audience. They're cyclical. You have to do your election coverage. It's boring. It's, It's a lot of data. How do you tell that story in a compelling way to get people to tune in? And KPCC decided that they would try to find somebody who wasn't planning to vote, and their entire coverage would be convincing this guy to vote. So they found this guy named Al, who was a chef in L.A., and Al had lived in L.A. for like a decade, and he they found him, I think, in a parking lot by putting up a sandwich board saying, do you not plan to vote, and would you like to talk to KPCC? And they ended up doing five radio pieces on um, Al, and they did an online campaign which with the hashtag MakeAlCare. And the entire campaign was designed to make Al want to vote. So in the first story... They introduced everybody to Al. In the second story, Al met all of the candidates. Um, the third story, Al hosted a candidates forum at his restaurant where he worked. And and over the course of the story, many people found out more information about the election because it was personal. It was it was you didn't know how the story was going to end. It became more about the way to tell an election story than it did about like it, it was it was about Al. It was about you know some guy in your community that you needed to. Um, make care about civic information. And so they were able to tell the story in a way that had some of their biggest online traffic, some of their biggest radio traffic, was really, really compelling, convinced out of vote, which is a nice side effect. But also, you know, thinking about how to almost it's, it's like audience centered design. How do you convey the story of an election for the audience that you have? And thinking about what's the best way to tell that story. And I think bringing communities into that storytelling process helps discover and tell stories like that. We are at a time where um, there's a lot of tension between kind of public and private and podcasting having reached a certain tipping point where there's a lot more private dollars going into it. And you even hear people like um, Ira Glass talking about turning you know, taking away, like, let's get rid of the uh, the on-air pledge drives and let's have this, like, we find that we can finance this better if we go into private. I think that the public radio aesthetic has been replicated. I think that there are many podcasts that sound like they're on public media. Um, I haven't seen one yet that's covering local civic issues. 
in the way that a local statehouse reporter would cover news at the Connecticut Statehouse or the Arkansas Statehouse or Wyoming Public Radio. Part of what public media has is, is this trust in what public media does. We, we have this trust with the public and, and with our audience. We have this mission that we have, and that's what differentiates us. It, it's not the aesthetic of NPR. I could record a podcast in my basement tonight and put on some nice xylophone sounds and, you know, interview a couple of people and maybe like a marimba break or something. And, you know, it, I can make a podcast that sounds like it's NPR. But if I'm putting advertising all over that, then there there's a there's I'm creating something where there, there's winners and there's losers in 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 the advertising space. If, if you're creating something, that means something else isn't getting heard. And what's nice about public media is that's not the compelling interest for why we cover the things we do. But and that's and that steers back to like the public media organization as a public service organization beyond just us broadcasting stories to you. We bring you in and we give you new opportunities to engage. Yeah. So the project that I'm tackling at Neiman right now is what does a membership model look like if it's based on something other than monetary donations? So how do we bring people in, maybe with the end goal of having them contribute financially, but that's not our first interaction with them, and that's not the way that we're thinking about them initially. Like, how much are they going to pledge? Instead, it's how much, you know, what kind of investment will they have in this public service that should exist in the future, and how can we serve this population that we have been, that is our mission to serve, and are we doing an effective job of the way that we're currently serving that population? So we've talked a lot about a lot of different models for how stations can engage with the with the public, and you're creating a kind of like a, a, a like a network in a way for all of these stations to uh, engage and to iterate without reinventing the wheel. Can you describe how you have tapped these stations on the shoulder and brought them in, and how other stations, if they're interested, could could come and help out and make this a, a bigger thing? So like you said, I'm not interested in reinventing the wheel. What I am interested in is saying, Station A has done this. It's successful. Would Station B, would you like to try this? Or, Or here's a platform or a place where stations can share things like code and ideas and and really bounce off of each other because there's no reason for stations to reinvent the wheel if somebody else has figured this out. Um, and I'm, I'm also thinking like stations can just try these experiments and see what happens. There's no reason to wait for an experiment or wait for me. If you're interested in um, interacting with a community that you would like to interact with, think about what kind of experiment you could run and how you would test that and then how you would measure it. I like how um, you, you seem to have this like incredible repository of stories about storytellers like the all these networks that are doing amazing and interesting things and just to be able to float that to the surface and give people the option to say that's cool I wish I could try that out yeah yeah I think that you've just touched on something which is that everybody who's working in the public sector should be looking at what everybody else who's working in the public sector is doing Um, when the people who work in public libraries are not looking at public media or vice versa or the people who work in local and state governments um, then we're not really surfacing things that could work in all of them. So if, if if somebody has created software that works to draw people into a library or to um, track people who visit like a public radio station or to engage with people in a different way, how, how could that be shared and how could that be surfaced? Well, thank you very much, Mel. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Melody Kramer is a Neiman Fellow researching how membership is defined in public media. She's scouring the country for examples of people who support their public radio stations in non-financial ways, including coding and story ideas. Eventually, she hopes to put all this information into one shareable, searchable database. But for now, you can find examples of her research on her GitHub, which we link to from today's show notes at cyber.law.harvard.edu, where you can also share questions, comments, or show ideas, and tweet us at Radio Berkman. This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and written and edited by Elizabeth Gillis, with oversight from Gretchen Weber from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts.